Welcome to the First Baptist Church Keller Sermon Podcast. Each week we make available sermons from Pastor Keith and our staff on our website, fbckeller.org. And on iTunes, search for First Baptist Church Keller TX in the iTunes Store or in the podcast app on your mobile device. And now here's our pastor, Keith Sanders. Let's take our copies of God's Word together and open to the 129th Psalm, Psalm 129. The title of today's message is Undefeated. We're about two-thirds of the way through our study of the Psalms of Ascent, and you haven't quit yet, so you're undefeated. The Psalms of Ascent are Psalms 120 through 134. They were likely, as we say every week, sung by Jewish pilgrims on their way to worship the holy city of Jerusalem. Psalm 129 is a song of corporate celebration. The nation of Israel is celebrating its own survival. And the reason they have survived, as we'll see this morning, is because of God's faithfulness. It is almost a twin of Psalm 124 that we studied last month. Do you remember that one? Which says, has it not been for the Lord who was on our side, let Israel now say, had it not been the Lord who was on our side when men rose up against us, then they would have swallowed us up alive when their anger was kindled against us. And David in that psalm pictured tiny Israel as a small bird of prey which was about to be consumed by a large predatory animal. But God spared them. And similarly in Psalm 129 we we read something very much like that. Let's read it now. Psalm 129. Many times they have persecuted me from my youth up. Now we're told that that was an instruction from the choir leader. He would say... From my youth they have persecuted me. And then he say, now let Israel say. And then the crowd would respond. Verse 2, many times they have persecuted me from my youth up, yet they have not prevailed against me. The plowers plowed upon my back. They lengthened their furrows. The Lord is righteous. He has cut into the cords of the wicked. May all who hate Zion be put to shame and turned backward. Let them be like grass upon the housetops, which withers before it grows up with which the reaper does not fill his hand, or the binder of sheaves his bosom. Nor do those who pass by say, The blessing of the Lord be upon you. We bless you in the name of the Lord. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading and hearing of this, his word. There's three things I want us to see from these verses today. Number one is surviving the past. We have a number of members in our church who have come through cancer treatments and they've been pronounced cured by doctors and they call themselves cancer survivors. And when you survive something as traumatic as cancer, that's something worth celebrating. Well, the nation of Israel is celebrating that they've come through countless years of persecution, through countless battles and wars, and they have remained distinct and intact as a people unto God. And so they began by reciting some of those persecutions. He says many times, They, and I think they points to all of those who hate the things of God, have persecuted me from my youth up. Now in what sense has Israel been persecuted from her youth up? We don't generally think of countries in such human terms as having a youth, a middle-aged, and a senior adulthood. But they do. And he says that Israel was persecuted since they were a youth. Now it doesn't say only when they were a youth. That's where the persecution began. And it continues on, as we'll see, to this good day. 
But in what sense was Israel persecuted from their youth up? Well, first of all, we have to know where did they spend their youth, their childhood? Well, Hosea says it was in Egypt. You remember that's where the story of Israel truly began. Abraham was a man who was a pagan, lived down in Ur of the Chaldees, called Abram at the time. And God came to him and says, I'm going to go and I want you to go to a land I'll show you. And uh, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make your name great. And all the world is going to be blessed through your seed, through your descendants. Now Abraham believed God and he had faith. And he's the father of those that have faith. But uh, he also had some very real descendants. His son was Isaac. And Isaac had two sons, Jacob and Esau. And remember it was through Jacob's seed that the nation began to flourish. He had 12 sons one of whom was Joseph. And the other brothers hated Joseph because he was favored by his father. Remember his father made for him a coat of many colors. And he went to his brothers and showed it off and told them a dream he had where they all bowed down to him. And they were jealous of him and angry towards him. And they decided they were going to kill him. But cooler heads prevailed and they, instead of killing him, sold him off into slavery. He ended up in Egypt in the house of an Egyptian named Potiphar. And he was a, a wonderful young man. And showed himself to be very industrious before very long. He had won Potiphar's trust and he put him in charge of his whole household. Potiphar's wife was wicked and she wanted to sleep with this uh, good looking young man and being a righteous lad he ran from her but she accused him of attempted rape. He was thrown in the dungeon and even in the dungeon God blessed him, brought him up out of the dungeon. He became the chief advisor to Pharaoh and ultimately second in command in the whole nation. Now God was at work in all of that wasn't he? Because in his sovereignty, he sent a famine down to where Joseph's brothers and father were living. They went up to buy grain from Egypt. They didn't recognize their brother Joseph, but he recognized them. And ultimately, he revealed himself to them as their brother. And he said, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. And he gave them a very a choice part of Egypt. And they began to farm and thrive and multiplied and were blessed by God so greatly that the people of Egypt became afraid that there were going to be more Jewish people than there were Egyptians before too long. And so they put them under hard labor, put them ultimately into slavery. And look what he says here, the plowers, verse 3, plowed upon my back, they lengthened their furrows. Now that's very vivid agricultural imagery. If you've ever plowed a field, you know you sink your plow into the earth and drag it behind a tractor or a beast of burden and it makes a trench. It makes a deep furrow. And this furrow is not in the ground. Israel says it's upon their back. And I think that is an image of their beatings that they took while they were under hard labor, under bondage. And very vivid it is. Their time in Egypt was painful. It was so painful that for hundreds of years they called out to God for deliverance. And He heard their prayers and He sent Moses to deliver them. He sent ten plagues and ultimately Pharaoh let them go and then changed his mind and pursued them with his armies and God drowned those Egyptian armies in the Red Sea. That's the youth of Israel and they're looking back on it and they said God protected us. God helped us to, um, to survive through all. They're really just celebrating they're still around. Now this persecution did not end in Egypt. It just says it began there. In fact, it says many times, as they look back historically, they have been persecuted. Now think with me through history for a moment. Israel, after they left Egypt, crossed ultimately after 40 years in the wilderness into the Promised Land led by Joshua. They still had to fight eight wicked nations that occupied the land. 
nations like the Moabites, the Ammonites, Edomites, Syrians, and others. And once they established cities and places of worship, they, they still were attacked from the north, the south, the east, and the west. The Babylonians, the Assyrians, and the Egyptians from time to time would come and their cities would be destroyed, their leaders killed, and their best and brightest like Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego taken away to foreign lands. And yet they survived. They were dispersed through the centuries to the ends of the earth, yet they were not wiped out. They were marginalized and slandered wherever they went, and yet they survived as a distinct ethnic group, even when for many centuries they didn't even have a homeland. Perhaps the greatest assault on the nation of Israel came in some of your lifetimes, when Adolf Hitler and the Nazis sought the final solution to what they viewed as the problem of the Jews through genocide in which six million Jewish people were murdered, and yet they continue to survive as a people today. Indeed, verse two is accurate. Many times they have persecuted me from my youth up, yet they have not prevailed against me. Now, most of us admire individuals or sports teams or even nations that survive against great odds and obstacles and keep going. But we, as Christians, if we're not careful, will chalk up Israel's survival to their tenacity or their inner strength or their military acumen. But the author of this psalm reminds us the real reason that Israel is still around. Look at verse 4. He says, the Lord is righteous. He has cut into the cords of the wicked. Underline that four-word phrase, the Lord is righteous. It means he does what is right. He keeps his promises, in other words. Friday, we had the funeral service here of a dear man in our church. And I compared him to Simeon of Luke chapter 2, whom the Bible describes as righteous and devout. Devout in the sense that relationship with God was right, and righteous in the sense that his relationship with other people was right. He had the habit of doing what was right. He had the habit of keeping his promises. But I said in that sermon that no one is righteous in the way that God is righteous in that he's perfect and holy and he never has lied. God told Israel that he was going to preserve them and protect them and even when they were faithless, he would remain faithful. And that's not to say that uh, God allowed, didn't allow times of uh, chastening in the life of Israel, he certainly did, sometimes for decades at a time. But he has promised always and ever to be faithful to them and he has been and he is. The Lord is righteous. He has cut into the cords of the wicked. Get the picture there of a slave with scars on his back, those deep furrows of the enemies of God, forced into labor, bound hand and foot with cords or chains. And the scripture says God has cut the cords in two. He has set them free. And that's our second point. Yes, we should look back and thank the Lord that we've survived the past but also thank the Lord that he has set us free in the present. And the reason, the reason that Israel has survived thousands of years where their enemies have come and gone. Have you noticed that? Have you studied world history? You studied the Babylonians. You studied the Assyrians. You studied the great Egyptian empires. And what is true about all of them? They came and they went. And all of them subjugated Israel. All of them mistreated the Jews. And all of them have been banished to the dustbin of history. And yet God continues 
to bless his people. The reason that Israel has survived thousands of years where their enemies have come and gone is that the Lord is righteous. He keeps his promises. He cut the cords that kept them enslaved. Now, remember how he did that. We've already pointed to Moses, who he sent to bring them out of Egypt. But what about when he sent Nehemiah, gave him favor as the cupbearer of the king to go back and rebuild the walls of Jerusalem and reestablish temple worship there? But probably the, the most amazing way in which he's preserved them was in the 20th century. Where for centuries of them not having a homeland, he reestablished Israel as a recognized state. That was in many of your lifetimes. Now again, compare this to Psalm 124. Blessed be the Lord, who has not given us to be torn by their teeth. Our soul has escaped as a bird out of the snare of the trapper. The snare is broken and we have escaped. Our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. Remember the picture that David gave us was this small bird who was trapped in a snare and God came and broke it free. Now he sets them free. It was a picture of a wild animal with snarling teeth, vicious fangs about to devour them whole and God would not allow them to be torn to shreds in his mouth. God is the one who gets the glory. And so you look to the past and we say, yes, it's been through many dangerous toils and snares that we've come, but uh, we're still here. We thank the Lord for that, and we thank Him that he's been, we've been set free in the present. And then He looks towards the future. That's appropriate. Because the Scripture says God's the same yesterday, today, and forever, isn't He? In the past, He's been holy. In the present, He's holy. And in the future, He will be holy. Verses 5 through 8 are difficult for Christians to read because they are imprecatory in nature. Imprecatory psalms are those psalms that are attended, intended to call God's help and judgment against those who hate Him and His people. Look at verse 5. It says, May all who hate Zion be put to shame and turned backward. Let them be like grass upon the housetops which withers before it grows up with which the reaper does not fill his hand, or the binder of sheaves his bosom. Nor do those who pass by say, The blessing of the Lord be upon you. We bless you in the name of the Lord. Now, imprecatory psalms, as I said, are, are, are those that make Christians uncomfortable because we know the New Testament. Jesus says, Bless those who curse you. Bless and curse not. He, he tells us to turn the other cheek. And so what are we as Christians to do with imprecatory psalms. Well, historically, Christians for the last 2,000 years have had about three choices of what to do with imprecatory psalms. Some people say, let's ignore them. Let's pretend they're not there. As uh, my preaching professor in seminary calls this the great theological broad jump. When you're preaching through the psalms and you come to an imprecatory psalm, you just jump over it and land on the other side and pretend it wasn't there. And that's what a lot of Christians do. Well, the Scripture says that we're to teach the whole counsel of God, so we can't do that if we believe all the Bible is true. And then there are those that say, well, this shouldn't be in the Bible. And so they take a, a knife, either metaphorically or, or real, and excise these chapters and verses from the Bible and say, that, that doesn't belong there. That's sub-Christian, they would say. I find it interesting that Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus doesn't say, now, the Word is true all except the imprecatory Psalms. You don't have to obey those. Uh, Paul doesn't say that. In fact, when he talked to Timothy, speaking of the Old Testament, 
2 Timothy 3.16, he says, all Scripture is God-breathed, doesn't he? And is profitable for reproof, correction, training, and righteousness. And so if that is true, then the imprecatory Psalms fall in that category. So that leaves us with our third choice, and the one we're going to make is we're going to read it, and we're going to preach it, and we're going to believe it. And so let's look at this imprecatory Psalm. What specifically is the psalmist calling upon God to do? He says, may all who hate Zion be put to shame. Now, some things to notice here. This is not a personal slight or abuse. He's not asking God to take vengeance for some personal grief. This is what we call righteous indignation. There are some things that ought to make us angry. And that is when the good name of God is slandered or his plan is attacked. We know that anger is not always sinful, don't we? We know that because in the New Testament, Jesus got angry. And we know Jesus was without sin. For example, when he chased the money changers out of the temple, rebuked them because this was to be a house of prayer for all men. You've made it a den of robbers, he said. Jesus got angry. Now there's a warning attached with that. I would say a very small percentage of the time I get angry, it's really righteous indignation. <laughs> Most time I get angry is I feel like someone slighted me or wronged me personally. And that Jesus says, and those times turn the other cheek. Bless those who curse you. There's a great example in the New Testament. Remember two of Jesus' apostles, James and John, he called them the sons of thunder. Because they were always getting worked up emotionally, right? And so they, they felt like they and Jesus had been slighted by this individual in this particular village. And, and they said, Lord, at this time, would you like us to call down fire from heaven? <laughs> Just wipe these people off the face of the earth. Jesus didn't say, well, thanks, guys. Appreciate it. Let's do that. <laughs> he, he rebuked them and said, you do not know what kind of spirit you are of. See, these were lost and blind people. And by the way, we shouldn't expect lost people to act like saved people. Lost people are going to act like lost people. So don't let that get you upset and angry. Don't call down fire from heaven on them. But there are certain things in the world institutionally that are going on that we recognize immediately as the hand of Satan. Because the Bible says he is the God of this age. And when you see things going on in the government and in the media and in the world at large systematically that are against God and against what he says is right and against his plan, you can rest assured who's behind it. It's Satan. And it is not only right, it is appropriate for God's people to pray to God to intervene. This is what is happening here. We must always be ready to turn the other cheek as Jesus taught but it is not wrong to pray that God would thwart the plans of those who seek to destroy the church or God's people. So what does he ask for? That their enemies would not be successful in their plans. He says, let them be put to shame. Now this is the opposite of, of a victory dance. Been watching college baseball this week. My alma mater made it to the College World Series and we watched the game in a hotel room from Alabama when they won the game that sent them to the World Series. And you would have thought World War III had ended or something. It was just a massive celebration. They were taking it all in. But I noted how differently those men responded when the last out of the game that eliminated them from the championship. 
Rather than celebrating and taking victory lap, they cried and had their heads hung in shame. This is what he's talking about. Here's some people that are trying to attack God's people and thwart God's plan of his name being glorified in the world. And he knows that Satan is behind it. And he said, don't let them have a victory dance. Put them to shame. Turn them backwards. That is, don't let them make progress. And even if they think they're winning, let it come to nothing. Again, he uses agricultural imagery. He says in verse 6, let them be like grass upon the housetops, which withers before it grows up, with which the reaper does not fill his hand or the binder of sheaves' bosom. I've told you before, they had very little lumber available. And so they built their houses out of mud brick and they had dirt roofs and dirt floors and the wind would blow seed on top of those roofs and it would germinate and come up, but there was enough moisture and there certainly was enough soil for it to grow. And so it looked like you were gonna have a house top full of grass, but soon it would wither up and die and there, wouldn't, there wasn't enough even to make one sheave of hay out of it. He says, let that be their plans. Even when they think they're gonna win a victory, let it come to nothing. In fact, he says, don't even let the people that pass by say the blessing of the Lord be upon you. We bless the Lord, in the, we bless you in the name of the Lord. That was something that people said to the poorest of the poor. Do you remember the story of Ruth in the Old Testament? Ruth was a poor widow woman and she and her mother-in-law were gleaners. Uh, the law was in those days when farmers harvested their grain, they were to leave some areas of the field for the poor. And these gleaners would come in and they would harvest the rest of the grain that was left behind just to survive, just to have their bread. And remember that uh, Boaz saw this beautiful woman, Ruth, and he loved her and they ended up getting married. But, but when people would pass by the poorest of the poor, the gleaners, they would pronounce this blessing on them. And he says, don't even let them have enough for the people to bless them over it. Now that seems harsh, doesn't it? In our New Testament ears, we're asking God not to bless their plans. But listen, it is not wrong to ask God to thwart the plans of the enemy. Now again, be careful. You, you don't get to call down fire from heaven on the guy that cuts you off in traffic on 635. <laughs> That's not what he's saying but against those who are seeking to do harm to God's church and God's people, yes, it's right to ask God's protection over that. This is not, by the way, simply an Old Testament concept. We find it also in the New Testament. Let's look to Revelation 6, the very end of your Bible. Revelation chapter 6, please. And I want you to see this. You remember that the Apostle John had the unspeakable privilege of uh, seeing the future, seeing into heaven, seeing how the world was going to end. He saw those seven seals which sealed up the title deed of the universe, which was held in the hand of the Lamb of God, the Lord Jesus. And one by one, these seals are broken and history unfurls. And then he comes to the fifth seal in Revelation 6, 9. When the Lamb broke the fifth seal, I saw underneath the altar, that is the altar of heaven, the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and because of the testimony which they had maintained. Who are those who have been slain because of the word of God? Well, those are martyrs. Those are Christian missionaries who have been killed because of their 
association with Jesus. Verse 10, they cried out with a loud voice saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And there was given to each of them a white robe, and they were told they should rest for a little while longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who were to be killed, even as they had been, would be completed also. And so these people are crying out, these disembodied souls in heaven, Lord, when are you going to, to make this right? Jesus doesn't say, now that's ugly talk. You, you shouldn't say that about your enemies. He says, a little while longer. The implication is he is going to make it right. And is he going to make it right? He is. He's coming to judge the living and the dead. But he says, it's not yet time. You be patient. You wait and leave it to me. And that's why the New Testament says, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. We're not to give back evil for evil. We are to trust the Lord ultimately to make things right. And, and he will. But I'm going to tell you something now in a moment of confession that may shock some of you. I pray imprecatory prayers, often. Not against any of you. <laughs> but I do pray imprecatory prayers against the institutions and the organizations that their stated mission is against everything the Lord stands for. Let me give you three examples. Every time I pass an abortion clinic, I pray that the Lord would shut it down. Amen. Shut it down. There's one in particular down on I-10 between Houston and Galveston, you've seen it, high-rise building. And every time I see it, I feel like they're trying to poke God in the eye with the top of that building. And it stands as a monument to injustice and to bloodthirstiness. And I never fail when I pass it by to ask the Lord to shut it down. I pray against foreign institutions and governments that are persecuting our brothers and sisters in Christ. When I pray for missionaries that we've sent out from our church specifically, and I think how they have to hide from the government, I pray that the Lord would replace those wicked governors with Christian governors. And then I pray against false religions and cults in our area. Every time I travel to Utah, I go up on this mountainside and we look down into this city of, of St. George and we see the original Mormon temple there. And on every block or two there's a Mormon ward where people are being led to hell with a false gospel. And I have started praying specifically, Lord, would you shut this temple down and would you replace every one of these Mormon wards with an evangelical church? Those are imprecatory prayers but I think they're appropriate. I'll go one step further. It's not just the cults. I pray against those claiming to be evangelical Christians who are preaching a false gospel, particularly the prosperity preachers. And while I'm confessing, I'll just confess everything. <laughs> These uh, prosperity preachers uh, a couple of times a year will pay big money for local channels to uh, sponsor their fundraising drives. And they'll hire dozens of people off the street and pay them maybe minimum wage to answer the phone and tell you they represent that ministry. And they'll take your prayer request and also your routing number if you'll give it to them. So I called one day during this telethon, this particularly heinous, false prosperity preacher. And the 
poor, poor person that answered the phone says, uh, yes, what's your name? And I told her my name. And she said, what's your prayer request? I said, I want you to write this down clearly. <laughs> and I want you to give it to the preacher. My prayer request is that the Lord will either save you or shut your whole organization down before the sun goes down. Now, oh, I, I don't say that for you to applaud me. I say that because imprecatory psalms, imprecatory prayers are biblical. But I want to say again, be very, very careful. Don't pray God's judgment on any person because we are all sinners saved by the grace of God. Pray for their salvation. Don't expect a lost person to act like a saved person. But if a person is claiming to be a saved person and shaming the name of God, or if an organization's stated purpose is to thwart the plan of God and is antithetical to everything the Lord stands for, I think the Bible not only gives you permission, but gives you an example of how to pray against that. And that's what we find in Psalm 129 today. But you know this, we're, we're, we're not in the old covenant. We're under the new covenant. We celebrated that today with the Lord's table. But just as God's people in the old covenant were persecuted and maligned and slandered, we're not exempt for that today, are we? In fact, Jesus says, you're no better than your master. They persecuted him. They slandered him. In fact, Paul told Timothy, all those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus can expect persecution. So what do we do with that? Well, we're reminded from this psalm that the Lord preserved Israel through the centuries. There were times of chastening, there were times of pain, but ultimately His will was accomplished. And friends, when you're going through a time of persecution and pain, remember this, it is temporary and God is righteous and one day He's going to make right all things that were wrong because of sin's entrance into the world. And here's how Paul says it in 2 Corinthians 4. Just write it down in the margin. Go back and memorize it later. 2 Corinthians 4, 7. He says, we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. He's speaking of the church. He says, look, we, we've got this glorious gospel, this salvation in these old human bodies that are going to wear out. He says, we are troubled in every side. We are distressed, but we're not perplexed, not in despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, cast down, but not destroyed, always bearing about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our body. For we which live are always delivered unto death for Jesus' sake that the life also of Jesus may be made manifest in our mortal flesh. They crucified Jesus, they slandered Jesus, they're doing the same to His church, but He gives us life that we may make manifest to a lost and dying world the power of the gospel through Jesus. May the Lord give us strength. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank You for Your Word. And Father, even in the imprecatory Psalms we see the wisdom of your inerrant word. Help us not to be ashamed of it, simply to preach it, believe it, do it. Thank you, Father, that you have preserved your people Israel for thousands of years, even as their enemies and their kingdoms have come and gone. And Father, we believe you're gonna do the same for your church. We believe there will be a church for you to come back for. 
And so, Father, help us to be good and faithful servants until that day. And Father, I do pray against those institutions and entities which uh, exist for the express purpose of fighting what you say is right. And I pray they would not be successful. I pray you would bring them to an end and I pray that you would save the individuals who participate in those for your glory, even as you've saved many sinners in this room here, including myself. Father, I pray you do it not for our sake, but for your good name and for your glory. And we pray it in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you again for listening to our broadcast. To learn more about First Baptist Church in Keller, Texas, or to hear more sermons by Pastor Keith and our staff, visit us online at fbckeller.org.